0: Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. My name is Jace Thomas. I'm the student pastor here at Prince, which means I work with middle and high school students, which means I'm tired and having fun most days. That's usually how I describe that. Uh, if you got a Bible, turn to First Samuel 17. First Samuel 17. Uh, I want to take a few minutes. You may be wondering why I'm up here, why I'm preaching this morning. Uh, pastor Josh, really thankful for him. He usually gives me either this Sunday or the previous one to talk about something coming up in student ministry, which we call The Mix. Uh, Now, some of you may know of The Mix, some of you may know nothing about The Mix, you may have a teenager, you might not know a single teenager in your life, but I still think this matters, and I think you should know, and I think us as a church should know about this thing happening, uh, for one specific reason. I believe that what God does in your life, spiritually, as you walk with Jesus, if it's a good day of walking with Jesus or a bad day of walking with Jesus, I believe that when we come together as a church, what God does individually in your walk impacts the other people around you. Which means when we have significant spiritual events, regardless of the age group, regardless of the segment of the church, it means it impacts the rest of the church. And so I have people ask me all the time, why do you love student ministry? How long are you going to do this for? When I go to family reunions or gatherings, there's usually someone that's like, when are you going to get your own church? You know, there's some of that stuff. And I'm just here to tell you, all the action is with middle and high school students. Uh, And I'll explain more of that. And that's why we're in 1 Samuel 17. But this is my plea today for you to be praying for the mix, to possibly be involved in the mix, to be aware of it, to invite teenagers to the mix, but for us as a church to understand why God uses the next generation as much as he does. So the mix, before I read the scripture, I just want to tell you, the mix, if you don't know, is a three-day conference for middle and high school students. Um, we have a ton of college students that serve, a ton of adults that serve in our church, and uh, and it is a citywide event. So there are a couple sessions where there will just be uh, a couple hundred students from our church together. And then there's a couple sessions where they are citywide in a collection of about 20, 25 churches. Uh, in other words, thousands of middle and high school students will come together uh, this coming weekend to hear from the Lord. And to take the next step in walking with Jesus. So it matters. What we talk about this morning, it matters and it has eternal significance. And it's why I think the mix is so important because we're setting aside three days and just encouraging students just to hear from God and keep their eyes focused on Jesus. That matters. Amen? All right. So let's look at 1 Samuel 17. Now, We're basically going to be all up in this chapter today, which means there's a lot of scripture. So I'm going to give you some highlights and then we're going to slow down and read a couple things. But just know we're going to jump around a little bit this morning. So let me just kind of tell you where we're at in 1 Samuel 17. There is a war that's about to break loose between uh, the Philistines and the Israelites. And it takes place in this battlefield in this valley. And on one side, we have the Philistines. And on the other side, we have the Israelites, and they're probably preparing for war. King Saul, the king of Israel, is likely strategizing and working with commanders and units and positioning and all of these things, but something happens, and you may know this story, you may be aware of this, but something upends the whole plan to go to war and to fight between these two armies, see? A champion comes forward. We see this in 1 Samuel 17, verse 4. It says, There came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. In other words, what we know about Goliath, he was probably nine or ten feet tall. In other words, he was big. He was, a, he was a big boy. He was a large man. Like, I think about like, the biggest people I can think of. I think of, like, The Rock, you know, like Dwayne Johnson, who's just a human rectangle. Like, I think about him being big. But the, Dwayne The Rock Johnson does not even come close to Goliath, nine or ten feet tall, wearing, wearing hundreds of pounds of armor. He comes out as a champion of the Philistines. And it says in verse eight that he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Well, this changes, like, the whole scene. You have these two armies that have been strategizing and positioning and planning and preparing for war, but now you have this ginormous human being come out to the center and basically say, hey, I'll be the champion of my people if you send out a champion for your people, and then we'll just 1v1 this thing, and whoever comes out on top will declare the winner of the war. And so if I win, then Israel will will serve the Philistines. And and if you win, then the Philistines will serve Israel. And this, this is how this will work. So who's your guy? Who's your champion? Now this is interesting because... Not only does this change the tone of this whole story where we, we're about to have this war, but now we're going to have this one-on-one confrontation, it also asks this question that taps in to part of why the Old Testament is so important for us today. He asks this question, who's your champion? Who's he going to be? And by asking this question, What we realize is it falls into a series of questions that the Old Testament has been asking. When Adam and Eve first sinned, they asked the question, well, that Adam didn't work out, so who's going to be the second Adam? The prototype kind of malfunctioned back there, so who's going to be the archetype that we'll be able to imitate? Who's going to be the perfect man, the perfect human? Where is he? God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, and at the last moment, Tells him to stop, it was a test of faith, but what God tells us is that he will provide the sacrifice. So then the question becomes, well, who is the right son? If Isaac wasn't the right son, who then is the right son? If God was going to provide a sacrificial lamb, who then is that blameless lamb to be sacrificed? And now we end up here where we're saying, okay, well, who is then the champion of God's people? It's a really, really important question. And so as we read through this chapter and different segments of it, here's what I want us to think about. Let's look at the reactions of the different characters involved in this story because it's going to teach us a whole lot about our champion and our role in God's kingdom. Now it says, as we just read, that he came out and he taunted Israel and he called out uh, you know, Saul and he called out the Israelites and he said, who's going to face me? I'm the champion of, of the Philistines. Who's, who's going to be your champion? And in verse 10, it says that uh, the Philistine, Goliath said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And look at this first reaction we see. Remember, we're going to be looking at some reactions this morning. In verse 11, it says, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were what? They were dismayed and greatly afraid. You know, this is probably a fair uh, reaction, a fair response. If you're in a life or death situation and you knew you were probably about to go to war, you were possibly going to die, and now this champion comes out that is just like unfathomably tall and large, and he says, hey, I just need one of your guys to come fight me and we can settle this whole thing now. You probably think a a couple of things. One, maybe at first you feel immediate relief that, okay, cool, so I don't have to go to war now. Like, I don't have to fight. I don't have to go out in the battlefield and get slaughtered or whatever. We just need a guy to go. And then you might think a second thing. Well, I'm not that guy. No way I'm that guy. And then you start to look around and you realize no one matches up to the size of Goliath. He's too big. He's too strong. He's too intimidating. He's way too scary. I'm not the guy. And no one else I know is the guy. So the natural reaction then of all of Israel that was there in that valley was to be scared and be dismayed and realize we don't have the guy. Now, it's not just that Israel felt this way. It tells us when Saul and all Israel heard these words. In other words, Saul, the king. Remember, Israel asked this question. This is one of those questions. Hey, we need a king who's going to be our king. Well, Saul wasn't the answer. And we know David is anointed to be king and eventually becomes king. But I'm just here to tell you, David's not the answer either. But the person that had been chosen to represent Israel in that moment himself was dismayed and afraid. So we're talking top-down everybody. Men that have probably seen years of war, dismayed, afraid. What do we do? The story goes on and it tells us for 40 days, Goliath continued to come out. Twice a day. And say, all right, here I am. Like, where's your champion, Israel? Where's your cha- Who's going to fight me? Who's going to settle this? I mean, surely you don't want to send all these people to war, so send out your best guy. Where's your man so that we can fight? For 40 days, this happens. Morning and evening. But David wasn't there. See, David was the youngest son. David was the shepherd boy, and he was not of fighting age, so he wasn't at war. His oldest brothers were at war, but he wasn't there. So what was David doing this whole time? I mean, he wasn't contributing to the fight, so his father Jesse said, Hey, I want you to go back and forth from Bethlehem to the battle, and this is what I want you to do. I want you to bring some bread and some cheese and some stuff to your older brothers and to their squad and their commander. This is what our college pastor, Adam Tarver, referred to as David delivering charcuterie boards to Israel. Love a good charcuterie board. So he's bringing around some cheese and and some breads and those things. And he gets out there and, you know, Goliath was coming out twice a day. And so David was seeing his brothers one of these days when Goliath happened to come out. And he heard him talking. So he left the things that he brought, this is verse 22, it says, David left the things in charge that he had brought with the keeper of the baggage, and he ran to the ranks, and he went and greeted his brothers, and as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. So listen, we're looking for reactions here, right? We know before, Saul and all of Israel, how did they react? How did they respond? They were dismayed, and they were scared. They were afraid. But what does David do? This is amazing. We don't know what David did. It just says, and David heard him. We're going to pretty quickly find out what David was feeling, but I just think that's worth noting that we didn't see immediate fear from David. We didn't see immediate response. We just saw David heard him. He heard him. It says, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. They're thinking, man, this guy's challenging us. He's challenging our kingdom, challenging our people. And it says the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David's hearing all this. He's hearing them say this. He's hearing them talk about, hey, will no one stand up to this guy? Like, he's challenging us. Like, this hurts, you know? Like, somebody has to do something with this. And I'm like, if somebody does something, then, you know, the king will reward him. They'll be taken care of, but... David said to the men who stood by him, verse 26, hey, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now, let's look at this next response. We're going to come back to David's response there in a moment, but I want to look at some reactions from some other people. In verse 28, his eldest brother, Eliab, says this. His eldest brother, Eliab, heard when he spoke to the men, speaking of David. And it said, Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke the same way. And the people answered him again as before. David doesn't know war. He's young. He's probably 15, 16, maybe 17 years old. He's not old enough to be on the battlefield. He's never experienced war before. And he goes out and really he's just there to bring like cheese and bread to his siblings who are at war. So David probably doesn't have to think about himself in this situation, but his brothers have been there for 40 days, morning and evening, as Goliath has come out and challenged Israel. And this is amazing to me. David comes out there and is arrogant enough to be like, hey, uh, has anybody thought about it? Really, somebody should really do something about this. Hey, is nobody going to say anything to this guy? Like, he, he's defaming the name of the living God. Is no one going to do anything about this? And everybody's reaction is like, you think we haven't thought about that, David? We've been here for 40 days. Two times a day, he comes out and says these things. And so you have Eliab, his oldest brother. Now, we have to think about sibling dynamics here. I'm a younger brother. I've said a lot of things that made my older brother mad growing up. Pretty good at it, you know. I don't think that's what David was doing. I don't think David was trying to stir up his brother. I don't think he was trying to push his buttons, as younger siblings know how to do. No, Eliab responds, how? In anger. And he looks at David and he's like, hey, who do you think you are? Like, I know you. I grew up with you. You can't just come out here and see the situation day one. You've been here for 30 minutes, David. You heard Goliath say this one time. I've heard him say it 80 times. You hear him say it one time. And now you're going, hey, is nobody who's going to do something about this? Who do you think you are? He says, I know your presumption. I know the evil of your heart. You've just come here to see the battle. This is just a spectacle to you. Go back to your sheep, shepherd boy. And David's like, what did I say? (laughs) Does not click for David. Doesn't make sense for David. And we'll understand why in a few minutes, but it says that in verse 28, or not in verse 28, in verse 31, that when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for them. So word spreading that this kid, David, this loud mouth, snot nosed teenager is going, how come nobody's doing anything about this guy? Somebody needs to do something. And word begins to spread and it comes back to Saul and Saul calls him before him. And it says that David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him for you're but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. Think about Saul's response here. It's almost the same thing as his brother a little bit, right? Saul's already responded in fear. He's already been scared. He's already been dismayed. But now he sees David. Before when he saw Goliath, he was scared. But now he sees David coming forward and saying, let me go. And, and no, he doesn't, he's not angry like Elliot. But what he does is he, he doubts David. He says, man, you're young. I don't even know if you know how to fight. You're a youth. And Goliath has been a man of war since his youth. Like no chance here. And I just want to pause for a second here. And let me explain to you why I think student ministry is so important and and clear up some things because I think it, baffle, it baffles people sometimes why I feel called to do student ministry or why people think student ministry is important. Because sometimes we look at it as like, okay, it's just like this fun segment of life. You plan a lot of fun events, talk about Jesus, do a good devotion, and then they'll graduate and they'll become adults. And, you know, they'll be they'll be the future of the church. They're, they're the church. They are currently the church. You know this, right? They are currently the church right now because... Look what David's about to do. So let me just pause here for a second and explain this to you. I had a neighbor growing up. His name's Hunter Scott. You can look him up later, read about him. Um, He grew up on the street. Like he was probably like six or seven houses down from me, four or five years older than me, five years older than me, I think. And he was on, um, you know, the late show with David Letterman twice when he was a teenager. Now for this section of the room, David Letterman is like Jimmy Fallon, but with less games, less games. He was on there twice as a teenager. The first time he was on David Letterman because he had this funny thing he could do that was obviously worth a national audience. He could pogo stick. Do they still have pogo sticks? He could pogo stick. It's just a stick that bounces. That's it. Doesn't sound exciting, I know. Pogo stick. And he could jump rope and pogo stick at the same time, okay? This is what he could do. And this is why he's on David Letterman. And this is what I think we think about when we think about student ministry sometimes, right? do fun stuff, keep them entertained. Yeah, like, students will learn to do some, like, really cool stuff, right? And it'll be worth an audience sometimes, but, like, they're not going to do anything serious or life-changing. The second time he was on David Letterman was for something much more important. Uh, When he was 11 or 12, he did a National History Day project on the USS Indianapolis. You might not know about the USS Indianapolis. It was a naval ship. And it sunk in 1945. There are about uh, 1,200 people on board. Only 300 survivors. Now, only a couple hundred went down with the ship. The other 700 or so were left out at sea for a day or two. And by the time they were saved, there were only 300 of them. And Hunter Scott did his project on this because he was watching the movie Jaws. And it's mentioned in this movie. And so he's like, oh, that might be a cool project. I want to learn more about that. And as he began to do research, he found that the captain of the ship, his name was Charles McVeigh III. Sounds like a good captain's name. He was held responsible for the deaths of about 1,000 people. Now, we know a captain's responsible for a ship, but this is one of the largest single losses in naval history with a ship. One day. The blame was put on him. He was held responsible, and carrying that guilt and that shame and the burden of knowing that he was the one who took the blame, he committed suicide about 15 years later. And Hunter Scott, as a 12-year-old boy, began researching this and reading articles And reading stories from the survivors. And what he began to believe is that Charles McVeigh was actually innocent. And so he began to interview over 150 survivors. A middle school boy began calling and interviewing all of these survivors from this tragedy and asking them questions because now his sights weren't just set on a grade or a good project or an attaboy or a ribbon or anything like that. His sights were set on justice and innocence for this man who had been wrongly named guilty for this tragedy. So my neighbor at 15 stood before Congress. With a group of survivors. And he pled the case that Charles McVeigh was innocent. And sometime after. President Bill Clinton signed a congressional resolution. In the year 2000. That exonerated Charles McVeigh. He cleared his name. This is unbelievable. That a 15 year old boy who had started a project in middle school would see it through. This is what I think about when I think about student ministry, okay? We, we look oftentimes at middle school students, high school students, even college students. We look at them often the same way that we look at David through the eyes of his brother and through Saul. You're so young. You don't know what the world's really like. You don't have the experience. You're just here for the spectacle. You just got, hey, you're just excited right now. Just give it like a week. Just calm down. Just breathe. Or who do you think you are that you think you're the one that can do this? Leave this to the experts. Leave this to the people out in the real world. Like, who, who do you think you are that you're the one that can take down Goliath, David? Like, who, do you know how young you are? Do you know how to experience? Like, no, I know you. I grew up with you. Like, who do you think you are? Or sometimes we take the dreams of a teenager like my neighbor and we don't just look at him and say, hey, you're too young. You don't have the expertise. No, we look at the problem. We say, hey, that guy's dead already. This problem was 50 years ago. It's already been decided. It's already been settled. Like, Why don't you just walk around like, being okay and knowing in your own heart that you think he's innocent because the problem's too big to solve. No, we look at David and we say, okay, all right. Like, no, you're, you're inexperienced, you're too young. But then we also look at Goliath and we go, no, it's too big. It's too much. But look at what David does. Look at how he responds to Saul when Saul tells him he's not able to go, that he's too young. In verse 34, it says, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and I struck him and and I killed him. Your, your, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. Now you may see this and you may think, oh, so he's making a case for himself. And he's saying, no, you don't know me like that, Saul. Like I've been out there. I know being a shepherd boy seems like really nice and sweet and like really good for like, you know, kids books and like good stories and all that stuff. But no, there are bears out there and I've fought them, but that's not what David's doing. David's not making a case for himself. Look what he says in verse 37. It says, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, We'll go and the Lord be with you. David's not saying he's the guy, David's not saying he has the ability. David's saying that those experiences he had as a shepherd boy in the wilderness protecting those sheep were strictly the Lord delivering him from those situations. So let's think about the responses we've had so far, and then let's look at what David's doing. First of all, David and Israel, or not David, Saul and Israel and Eliab were all looking at Goliath, and they're going, too scary, too big too powerful, insurmountable, can't overcome them, we're doomed. And then David's the only guy that steps up and says, hey, maybe we should do something about this. And then everybody instead shifts their focus from Goliath to David, and they say, too small, too weak, too young, too inexperienced. But what is David doing? Because so far we've heard that David heard Goliath, and it just says he heard him, Period. And then David walks around. He's like, "Is he, am I going to do anything about this?" He's defied the armies of the living God. Now think about this for a second. David responds differently from everyone. Specifically, David responds in faith. But we're going to see what that faith produces. But the first way I think he responds through faith is that he sees this is a spiritual battle. See, the men of Israel were saying, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? He's thinking, man, who's going to take away this guy that, that, that's challenging our lives and our way and our pride and our people and our army? They're thinking earthly, but David steps up and responds to them and says, who, who's going to defy the guy that's defying the armies of the living God? He sees that it's a spiritual matter. It's a spiritual battle. That this isn't just about the people. It's not just about the battle. It's not just about the families back home or the wealth or good of the country. He sees that this is ultimately about God. His faith allows him to see that it's spiritual in nature. But his faith also allows him to see something else. and I want to jump here to verse 43. David has spoken to Saul. He's pleaded with Saul. He says, hey, listen, the Lord delivered me. He's going to deliver me again. Saul says, go. And David approaches the Philistine. And in verse 43, it says, the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. This is what happens before you have any epic climactic battle in any movie. You got to talk some trash to each other, right? But this is actually customary at the time. Goliath is the champion, and, and David has come forward. He's the man that Goliath called for, and they face each other, and he, and he tells them what he's going to do to him. And then, verse 45, it says this David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword, and with the spear, and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel See, David's faith gives him the ability to see that this is a spiritual battle. But it also grants him the ability to see who the champion is. Remember, this is the question. Who's the champion? David's not the champion. David's the representative of the champion. See, David comes out to meet him. And Goliath says everything he says, but he says, no, listen, Uh, this assembly will know that the Lord saves, that the battle is the Lord's, that he will give you into our hand. Everyone's looking at Goliath and they're saying, it's too big. We can't do it. And then they're looking at David. They're like, he's too small. He can't do it. And David's going, you're right. We can't. I can't. That's why God's the champion. That's why he's the one. I'm just the representative. So David goes out and he steps out to face Goliath and it honestly, it reminds me of the scene from The Lion King, which is one of the greatest animated movies of all time. Where Simba as a, you know, small cub, is backed against the wall and there are all these hyenas around him and he fears for his life and He thinks, okay, well, I've been practicing on this roar. So he kind of, you know, like resets and and he goes, rawr, you know, and the hyenas laugh and he's like, rawr, and he kind of laughs. But then he really digs down deep and he bellows this deep, resounding roar. It almost surprises him. And he watches the hyenas scatter. But just as he's kind of like, wait, how did I do that? He realizes it was his father, Mufasa, the full grown lion behind him. And that's what the hyenas saw. That's what David is in this situation. He's just standing in front of God saying, Hey, listen, I'm not actually going to do this. I know you're talking about like beating me and all this, but like God's going to deliver you, and I'm just going to cut your head off at the end and take it back to my home. David had faith that none of us often have, and this is why I believe in the next generation. Listen, this is why I believe. Because if you tell them, we talk about childlike faith, we see that in scripture. If you tell them that God is big enough to overcome anything, guess what? Most often it's the next generation that actually believes it. And I, I worry, I fear, that we're going to respond the way everyone else does. That we're going to say, no, no, Listen. The spiritual matters at hand that you're seeing and you're caring about and you want to do something about, kingdom issues, you're not big enough. You're not strong enough. They're insurmountable. You can't do this. You can't conquer this. You can't overcome this. I worry we're going to be like the older brother. Listen, it's usually family that does this the most, that we're going to stand in the way. And we're going to say, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what the world's like. I know we talk about God being big and loving and redeeming and powerful and all this stuff. But like this kind of stuff, he just kind of makes you suffer through. Listen, this is why last semester, when our church baptizes almost 100 people, half of those were teenagers. People were coming from every corner of the room because they saw teenagers stepping out in faith and responding and believing that God truly does save, that God truly does redeem, that God truly does overcome. And the problem is, if I can just be transparent with you for a moment, is we baptized a lot of people and then we haven't seen some growth after that. You know why? Because I fear we have parents and siblings, and friends, and churches that stand in the way when the students are pushing up against them saying, let me have at it. Let me do kingdom work. Let God use me. And they're going, no, 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 not yet. You're not old enough. You don't have the resources. You don't have the experience. College students, I worry about you. That's right. I'm talking to you guys. Y'all you just hold on a second. I worry about you because you are on like The end of this journey where you really believe God might actually do something. You're about to be in the place of life where you're weary and you know how the world works. And so you do the things your parents expected of you, you do the things your friends are doing, but you ignore the fact that God might have actually called you overseas somewhere. You ignore the fact that God might be calling you somewhere to do something extremely dangerous with your life that everyone else in your life is telling you that's too crazy, you're too young, you're too naive. Church, it's why I think we don't talk about our sin very often, because I don't think we actually believe God can do anything about it. It's why we don't ask for help in our marriages sometimes, because we think if we tell people that God's actually not going to do anything, and now we've just blown up our whole life. But I'm here to tell you this morning that we have a couple of ways we can respond We can respond in fear. We can respond with frustration or we can respond with faith. And the reason why the mix is so important is not because it's the best event that's ever happened in the state of Georgia. (laughs) But it's because what happens when you take the next generation away for three days and you say, God's going to speak, respond in faith. What comes next? And if as a church we agree to pray and seek the Lord, To ask him to move, what happens is he doesn't just move in the next generation, he moves in your generation. He doesn't just move in that family, he moves in your family. But what happens when an entire city of teenagers get together and say, we're going to hear from the Lord and we're going to choose faith in him. What does that do for the 25 other churches that are going to be there next weekend? I I just, I'll tell you now, it's going to be so easy to walk out of here and go, okay, I can do anything. Because God's big, and that was encouraging. No, listen, I'm here to tell you, there is something specifically kingdom-oriented that you need to see in your life. Something spiritual that you haven't seen before. You've just been looking at it as an earthly matter, and I'm just here to tell you, Scripture is teaching us that our champion, Jesus, actually wants to overcome these things in our life. See, who is the second Adam? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Who is the one that frees us from our slavery and sin? It's Jesus. Who is our rightful king? It is Jesus. Who is the one that delivers David and Israel from Goliath and the Philistines? It is Jesus. Who is the perfect sacrifice? Who is the right son? It's Jesus. Our Messiah, our king is our champion. And all he's calling us to do is to go face the things that seem insurmountable in this world and to step up to them and say, I'm not the one, but he is. All we're called to do is step out in faith and represent him. So yeah, I care about the next generation because they don't think things are too big very often. And they don't realize what they're missing very often. And so if you tell them Jesus wants to use them for the kingdom, they believe it and they do it. And as a church, I'm praying and begging that we don't stand in their way and actually that we don't step out of the way and mock them as we go. But we cheer them on and we push them and we encourage them to go do hard things for the kingdom of God. Why? Because it affects all of us as a church and it raises all of us us up in faith so that we can see Jesus as the champion. Let's choose him this morning as a church. Let's choose Jesus as the champion and let's represent him well, regardless of the circumstance and regardless of our weakness. It's him. Let's pray.